Good morning, everybody. Excellent. Like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who is visiting with us for the very first time today. I see a few new faces. So glad that you're here with us. And also welcome to anybody who's listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're more than welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday mornings. A few brief things before uh, I begin the message this morning. Mandy mentioned our 10th anniversary service. It's usually one of the biggest services, uh, most, uh, I should say, most well-attended services that we have each year. And so when we have big weekends, we urge all of our regulars, that's you, to be really good hosts. What that means is if you park really close to the, to the building, then maybe next week you should consider that those spaces should be reserved for guests. We are allowed to park uh, uh, in the parking lot next to us here for the hospital, and so it's just a short walk across the grass, and so I'm urging all of our leaders and all of our coordinators, if you get paid by this church, your car should never be in in this parking lot. Please park in the hospital parking lot because as we grow... And we uh, are thankful that the Lord has been growing us. uh, That reduces the amounts of available spaces. And we want new people, when they come, to not have to drive around. We certainly don't want them to go and park next door. And so we want you to be good hosts as as it relates to to parking. But you probably noticed that very few people sit in these first couple of rows. There's a lot of seats here. And so if you're a leader, if you're a coordinator, if you're a regular here, prime seating for new people are the back few rows. And so what I would like you to do is to think about our guests next week and fill in the, I don't know if I'm scary or you don't want to sit, you know, be close to me. Um, you know, maybe I spit when I talk. But either way, wear a poncho and sit right down in this area because we want to make, uh, we'll probably uh, set out some more seats, but I do want you to be mindful and be really, really good ho- uh, host. If you see a face you don't recognize, introduce yourself. Don't be weird. Just... Unless that's just who you are, just be, we want you to be yourself, but don't be any more weird than you have to be. Let's put it that way. Um, we really want to be good, uh, good hosts uh, next week, and we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a good time. The other thing I wanted to mention is if you were here last week, you probably heard us talk about um, uh, the uh, uh, holiday offering that we're going to take up this, this year. We do a holiday offering uh, a special holiday offering uh, every year. And if you know us, if, if you're familiar with this church, we don't do a whole bunch of offerings, right? We, we're just not that kind of church. But we do do a special offering around the holiday season where we typically raise between three and $5,000 for people in need. We are aware as pastors and leaders of unique needs in our community and in our church. And so typically we just raise a few extra $1,000 uh, every year. And we are a blessing to those families both in this community in our church and in this community that need our help. This year we're doing something different, and we're partnering with an organization called RIP, or Rest in Peace Medical Debt. And so basically, you've probably seen these on social media, where a church uh, retires millions of dollars of debt. They work with this organization, RIP Medical Debt, where they are able to literally uh, uh, retire debt for basically penny or pennies on the dollar, right? And so what a lot of our uh, friends have been doing is they've been raising money, uh, partnering with RIP Medical Debt, and just like really blessing people with a clean slate. Their medical debt is taken care of. And at the end of these fundraisers, typically what happens is the person whose debt was retired gets a letter that basically says, hey, the South Suburban Vineyard Church has taken care of your debt, God bless you, or something like that, right? And so what we've done is we've partnered with four other churches in this community 
because we want to knock out $5 million of medical debt. And between the five of our congregations, that's only raising like about $50,000 in order to do that. And I was talking with some of the other pastors in the network. We, we all started collecting for this offering last week. And already a million dollars worth of debt has been taken care of with some of the money that we've raised, right? And so I know a few of you have, have donated, but I really, 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 really want each and every family to consider what they might be able to sow to this. Again, this doesn't go to our church, doesn't go to the building fund. This is going exclusively to retire the debt of people who are just saddled with lots and lots of this medical debt. And so what we're asking is if you wish to give to this in the regular offering, you can do so by just filling out uh, an envelope and dropping your gift in that. But please uh, be careful to designate where you want this to go. So you can write MD on the check or the envelope or medical debt. If you want to give online or through your mobile device, just make sure you pull down medical debt in the uh, drop-down menu so we know where to allocate those funds. Please, please, please respond to this. This is going to be a great testimony of God's love and, and care for those who are in need. Amen? And last but not least, uh, if you're new around here, you may not know that over a year ago we engaged in uh, a building campaign that allowed us to purchase this building. It used to be a Jewish community center. We, we're sitting now in what used to be the gym. And so through your generosity and your faithfulness, we've been able to purchase this place, not just purchase it, but make steady uh, updates to this uh, building. And I'm pleased to report that we have almost raised uh, $300,000 because of your generosity. And so why don't you just give yourself a hand? Thank you. And I, I should also say that this giving that's come in um, starting like April of last year was, was just on top of your regular giving. And so we've seen a significant increase in our regular giving. This $300,000 is what this church has raised in addition to their regular tithes and offerings, and it's allowed us to be able to do uh, continued work in here. So I just wanted to say thank you. In fact, next week when we end our service, we'll clear this room and crews will start next, next week to uh, sand the, uh, the lines off of the gym floor and to give us a brand new floor, and this will be the last room. <laughs> you guys don't like the lines on the floor? No, you like them? Maybe we'll keep them. We won't keep them. Um, and so I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, so if you've made pledges, uh, continue to give on your pledges. If you're new here, say, hey, I got a bunch of money that's just sitting around the house. Uh, you know, you can bring that and so into the building floor, and we promise to put it to good use. And so thank you for all your generosity and your continued support. Let me get into the word today. Uh, if you've been hanging out with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in a sermon series that we've been simply calling Epic Fail. Epic Fail. And I get to conclude this series today. And I really uh, enjoyed this series. Uh, much like you, I, I, I get a lot out of these uh, sermons because I have to preach them to myself first, right? And so we have been engaging in this series because failure is just, if you're a human, unless you're a robot, if you're a human, you make mistakes. And sometimes the mistakes that you make are epic. They're grand, right? And so uh, we've been saying week after week that as our Western society, our Western society is, is, is fascinated with success and we want to read the success stories, but I've found there's great wisdom in studying failure. Uh, so that we can learn from the mistakes of others and hopefully uh, avoid similar 
mistakes. And we've said week after week that this series is best used on you. In other words, as we've talked about this for week, week after week, it's not uh, my desire that you would say, oh, so-and-so really needs to hear this. I'm, I'm going to send this link to so-and-so. What, what, what I expect for you to do first is to apply these stories, these truths to yourself first. And if you have time left over, maybe you can send it to somebody else. But we want to apply these truths to ourselves. We looked at uh, the Old Testament, the story of Uzzah. We looked at King David. We looked at Nabal, the fool. Last week, we looked at our brother Zacchaeus. And this week, we will uh, look at another New Testament story. Uh, And it's one of the parables that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the lost son. Now, as you might know, the parables aren't stories about real people. They are sort of made-up stories that Jesus told in order to drive home a point. But this story of the prodigal son or the the lost son is so relatable that really many of us could plug our own names in these stories and the details of our own failures and our waywardness, and it would still be pretty accurate. And so I want to spend some time today as I conclude this series talking about the story of the prodigal son or the story of the lost son, because I think like few other stories, this story illustrates that what some of us need most in life is a good failure. What some of us need most in life is a good failure. Now, you might say, preacher, I thought that this whole point of this series was to help us to avoid failure. You are correct. But some of us have been so wrapped up in our own selves. We've become so proudful and so arrogant and so full of ourselves that what we need most to get us back on track is a good, fat failure. And I think that this young man that we'll examine in this story shows us that perfectly. And so I want to look at some lessons from this story, learn from this young man's failure, and I ultimately want to see the gospel at work. I want you to see how redemption works. I want you to see how God loves to rescue those who have gone astray. He would prefer that we not go astray, but he certainly loves to come and rescue those of us who've gone astray. So we're going to talk about the lost son this morning. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture uh, in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 11. So why don't you meet me there in your Bibles today, Luke chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 11. Uh, There are Bibles on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use those Bibles if you like. Uh, Feel free also to use your tablets or your phones. We'll also be projecting the words on the screens. Luke chapter 15. While you find that, let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you for the privilege, the opportunity that I have to stand before your people and to bring your word. It's not something that I take lightly. Father, I pray that we would wrestle with these truths, that we would uh, uh, look at this passage as we're looking in a mirror in hopes of finding ourselves in this text. What might you be saying to us through this? What ways might we change course or change our trajectory as we engage righteous truth? Father, would you humble us today? Speak truth to us. Go in any room of our life with this word this morning, Father, and give us the the heart and the posture and the humility to receive, and not just receive, but to respond to you. Put power on these words you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 15. We'll start at verse 11. 
To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with the love and compassion, excuse me, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of even being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has returned to life. He was lost. But now he is found, so the party began. This is perhaps one of the most familiar passages of Scripture known even outside of the uh, the church world, uh, the story of the lost son of the prodigal son. But as I often say when we engage a text that might be familiar to us, that we should lean in today. We shouldn't assume that we know all that there is to know about this text because we're reading from the living word, right? who has some truth and some principles that you might draw from that you might not have experienced before. And so I encourage everybody to lean in to this familiar text, the text most commonly labeled as the prodigal son. And some of us might use context clues to assume that prodigal means wayward, right, or mischievous. But prodigal doesn't mean that at all. Prodigal means lavish, or what we might say extra, right? It might be it's used to refer to somebody who is lavish in their spending of resources. It's usually uh, designed to describe somebody who is being unwise and spending foolishly, foolishly right? Um, but this word prodigal also is used to describe somebody who gives generously or gives lavishly. And sometimes, rather than calling this text the story of the prodigal son, sometimes people refer to it is the story of the prodigal father who loved recklessly, who loved lavishly. But either way, this is a fascinating story that we can glean from if we have eyes to see it. And I think some helpful context might help us understand why Jesus told this story. If you go all the way up to verse 1 of Luke chapter 15, it opens this way. It says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to Jesus to listen as he taught. This made the Pharisees, church folks, religious people, made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people he was even eating with them, right? And we saw this last week when we looked at the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus called Zacchaeus down and went to his house. People had a problem. Jesus come to town, and this is who he sits with? The notorious sinner and the notorious tax collector. Jesus liked hanging out with folks who needed him 
the most. And when he was asked this question, why do you hang out with these scoundrels? Why don't you find better people to hang out with, better company to keep? Jesus tells a series of three parables. The first parable he tells is the parable of the lost sheep. He says, a guy has a hundred sheep. One gets lost, wanders off. Won't he leave that 99 sheep to go after the one that was lost? And in finding that one sheep, won't he throw a party because he found the lost sheep? He tells another parable right after that, the parable of the lost coin. He says a woman has 10 coins. She loses one coin. Won't she tear up her whole house to find that coin? And upon finding that coin, won't she call her friends over and throw a party because her coin was found? Jesus tells these two stories. But then Jesus perhaps considers his audience Pharisees, teachers of religious law. And perhaps these guys were just a little too white-collar to understand a blue-collar story about a lost sheep. Uh, Perhaps they were too well-to-do or too middle or upper-class to appreciate the value of a single coin. But these rich... Pharisees all had something in common. They had sons. And in the first century, sons were valuable. They were to carry on the family name. They would take care of their parents in their old age. Sons were valuable. And Jesus thought, maybe I could drive this point home. Maybe I could come down their aisle a bit if I talk to them about something they can appreciate their sons. And so he tells them about this story of a guy who has two sons. One of his sons gets beside himself, starts acting a fool, leaves home, makes a mess of his life, and lands with epic failure. He tells this story. And as we walk through this story today, hopefully we can see ourselves in this story. And as we walk through this story today, I want to highlight three things that led to this young man's downfall. And I want to highlight two things that lead to his eventual redemption. And again, I want us to try to find where we might be in this story. The first place that this young man went wrong, which led to his epic failure, was he was too smart for his own good. He was too smart for his own good. To put it a different way, he was proud. Not the good kind of proud, not the wholesome kind of proud, not the healthy kind of proud. He was proud. He was full of himself. And Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 tells us that pride goes before what? Destruction and haughtiness precedes a fall. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. And if I look back on some of my greatest failures... Some of the biggest mistakes that I've ever made in my life, not all of them, but many of them had the fingerprints of pride all over them. I knew everything that I need to know, but I knew nothing, right? And this is the challenge. This is one of the problems with children and the childlike is that they know everything while at the same time knowing absolutely nothing. They know everything, but they know absolutely nothing. I remember a time when I knew everything. Around 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, somewhere in that range, I knew everything. And I'm so grateful to the heavens that that there was no social media back then because all of my foolishness, all of my strong, silly opinions would have, there would be a record of them somewhere. 
And some of you haven't been as fortunate because yours have been captured forever on the internet. But do you remember when you knew everything? When you had an opinion about everything and couldn't, you know, people couldn't tell you anything? I was listening to NPR yesterday, and there was an interesting story on there. Apparently, there's this new pop culture phrase among young people, uh, OK Boomer. Has anybody heard of this? Um, So (laughs) let let me try to explain to you as best as I can. So the boomer is a reference to baby boomers or older people, right? And the OK Boomer is kind of like a dismissive thing. If somebody's telling you something, say, OK Boomer, yeah, OK. Now, apparently there's T-shirts, you can get mugs, there are cell phone cases, and apparently this is a growing phrase among, you know, millennials and whatever the, is it Gen, Gen Z, the next generation? And so apparently if, you know, a, a boomer's talking to you about how climate change doesn't matter and they're telling you something that clearly is false, you say, okay, boomers, it's kind of a dismissive thing, right? Um, now, any boomers in here? That's where all the groans are coming from, right? And so, you know, the millennials are sort of fed up with just being talked down to and condescended to. And so I think there's a noble strand of that, right? But I think that what's missing in our society, particularly young it's just honor. And a reverent honor and respect for not just an older person because they're older, but they've got some sort of tree rings to their life. They've been around the block a few times. They might have a thing or two to say that might help you. And so I found that when I knew everything, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the, I don't know, symptoms of that was just a dismissiveness of wisdom and wise counsel, particularly uh, from my parents. I, I've been saying lately that my parents get smarter every year. <laughs> my father's been dead for 10 years, but he still, he gets wiser every year, and that's just a slick way of saying, I, I just realize more and more each and every year that I know less and less Unless, and the things that my father used to say to me all the time that would just go in one ear and out the other, all of a sudden they've come back around and there's weight to those words. There's wisdom in those words. And so whereas before I might have said, okay, boomer, if that phrase were alive then, now I go, some truth to that. And so this sentiment and this dishonor for wise counsel and wisdom And so sagely advice is we are just too smart for our own good. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Put it a different way, Dad. uh, I like you and everything, but you're taking too long to die. (laughs) I will wait around for you, but I got some things I want to do. Would you cut me my inheritance check now? so I can get on with my life. Yes, give me the check, make it to loss on one L, and I got moves to make, right? Of course, a filial son, a respectful son, would never say this to us. It's disrespectful now in the 21st century. It it was unthinkable in the first century for a boy to approach his father and say, with such arrogance, I need my inheritance now. Gasps might be heard among the crowd of men that Jesus was telling this story to. This is not how an inheritance works. We know too much. And one of the hardest people to lead 
is somebody who knows everything. One of the hardest people to coach, we got coaches in the room, is a kid who knows everything or a kid who has parents that know everything. One of the hardest people to disciple, to pastor, to parent, to teach is somebody who already knows everything. And some of you, if you're honest, this is where you are. This is where you are. Nobody can tell you anything. Nobody can teach you anything. You know everything. You only accept compliments. You only accept pats on the back. If somebody ever were to darken your door with some criticism or some pushback against one of your ideas, they're dead to you. Some of us are too smart for our own good. And this, for me, at least in this story, seemed to be the beginning of the end for this young man. The second place he went wrong as a result of his pridefulness is he left prematurely. He left home prematurely. Making these sudden, impulsive moves, which is one of the distinguishing marks of the young, one of the distinguishing marks of the unwise, because wise people don't move like that. Healthy people don't leave prematurely. They don't make these sudden impulsive moves. And yet, here this young man was making premature moves. And those who know everything, those who are wrapped up in pride, their life is marked by series of sudden moves. And if you just take some time to think about your own life or somebody who you know to be unwise or somebody who you know who makes epic failure after epic failure, if you do the autopsy of their life, you will find that it is marked and often marred by sudden moves. I think one of the, if I could just be honest this morning, one of the things that uh, kind of uh, annoys me while at the same time I admire about older people is that they just tend to move kind of slower. Can I just say that? I'm going to get to the part where this is, this is a really honoring illustration. If you just let me, <laughs> let me get through it. I'm in traffic, man, and I, you know, I'm like, I'm just, I'm on, I got somewhere to be. You know, there, but... I see somebody tending to in front of me, going, you know, five, and I, yeah, I, I, I got I to go. Swerve around, and what happens? We meet at the light. <laughs> and it's super awkward. This ever happened to you? It's super awkward to meet somebody at the light that you almost ran off the road to get around them. And our dear friends, our older friends, they just kind of give you that look like, hey, But what I found, the, the, the older I get, what I found is that older people just know, hey, the light's up there. Where, where are you going? There is wisdom and slow and steady. I've learned that oftentimes haste has gotten them in some of the worst messes of their life. And so what I admire and what I'm trying to incorporate into my own life and my own decision-making is just slow down. Take my time. And there's some opportunities that you just got to hop on. There's some decisions that need to be made right now. There's some urgent matters that need quick action to cite, right? But most of life is not that way. 
When I see this young man, his dysfunction, his immaturity, his impulsivity, marked by sudden moves, had this conversation with his father. Verse 13 says, a few days later, he had his stuff packed, and he moved to a distant land where he wasted all his money in wild living. You have to understand, a man's supposed to leave his father's house with maturity and with his father's blessing. Again, he won't know all that there is to know, but he's supposed to leave his house, his father's house, with a measure of maturity and with a measure of his father's blessing. This young man had neither. He left prematurely. He left incorrectly. He left dishonorably. And if I could just say as an aside, it really, 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 really matters how you leave a place. It really, really matters how you leave a place. I won't say most people, but lots of people get this wrong. As a pastor and a church leader, I've seen this year after year as people. It's the right way to leave a church. And some people leave places and they tear up everything on the way out. And they're slanderous and they try to take people with them. Some people leave jobs and they steal a stapler or two on the way out and badmouth the ball. Listen, listen, my father used to always say to me, hey, careful how you leave, son. You might have to come back. You ever been arguing with your spouse or something like that, and you storm out of the room, and you slam the door, and then you're like, man, I left my phone in there. <laughs> and now you got to come back in here, and you, you, you know, get my phone. <laughs> slam the door the second time. Doesn't, it's almost silly to slam it the second time. <laughs> but he left, he left wrong. And some of you are in the process of transitioning out of something or you transition out and you've been a fool about it. You got on social media about it. You've acted dishonorably. Even if you were done wrong, even if it was time for you to go, it matters how you leave because you might need to come back. He left dishonorably. And so when your life is marked by these sudden moves, when you're leaving things prematurely, you are forsaking God-inspired opportunities of, of getting wisdom and counsel from both God and others. You're missing a key opportunity to get wise counsel from both God and others. And some of us, this is one of the major symptoms. This is one of the major outworkings of your pride and arrogance is that you're impulsive. Lots of quick moves. You're never at a job for that long. You're never at a church for that long. It's always something. You always can't be planted, right? And so this was this young man's problem, which ultimately led to the third thing that I wanted to bring up. He made not just mistakes, he made avoidable mistakes. He made avoidable mistakes. Now, hear me. If you are a human, you will make mistakes. If you are a human, you should make mistakes. That's one of the main ways we learn. 
But I don't know about you, but I don't want to make avoidable mistakes. I don't want to make avoidable mistakes. Because life gets hard for yourself and others when you're making all of these avoidable mistakes. My kids, they are not allowed to say the word stupid, but they love the word. And I told them the only way they could say this word is that they put it in this sentence because I want to drill this down in them. Life is hard when you're stupid. And so they love that sentence. And so Joe's hopping around on the couch and then he falls. You'll hear Eli say faintly, life's hard when you're stupid. <laughs> now the fall didn't hurt him, but that, that really stings him. He starts crying, don't no, quiet, Dad. Can he say that? I say, yeah, man. Like, <laughs> well, they'll do something silly and injure themselves, and they'll just ask one another, is your life hard right now? <laughs> this is sort of backhanded way of saying, hey, don't be, what? Because it's true. Life is hard. I might even say life's harder when you're stupid. Life is certainly harder than it has to be if you're stupid, and perhaps a kinder way to say it is unwise. And if I were to use more words, I would say life is harder for you, and by nature, the people who are connected to you, when you are continually making avoidable mistakes. Verse 13 tells us he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. Now, this is a Jewish man who probably grew up living a kosher life. They didn't touch these animals. They had nothing to do with pigs, but now he's got the jobs to feed them. But listen, verse 16, the young man became so hungry. He was so destitute that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything, this man is in a bad way. But he didn't have to be. Because of his pride and because of his arrogance and because of his impatience, he found himself making huge, avoidable mistakes. And what we find uh, is that the resources that God gives us, particularly money and means, are tremendous assets if we use them right. Our youthfulness is a tremendous asset under the right circumstances with the right guidance and guardrails. Youthfulness is an asset. But we saw this, converse, this, 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 this combination of both means and youthfulness, and it created a terrible cocktail. He found himself destitute. He had all this money, but now he has nothing. And my daddy would say all the time, son, money can't say a word but it'll soon tell a fool goodbye. And isn't that the truth? Money can't speak, but it will soon tell a fool there uh, so long. And so how did he get here? He knew too much. He was dishonoring to his father. Didn't process such a major decision with anyone who could help him do this. And therefore, he made avoidable mistakes. He got this money, found him some good time buddies, went and turned all the way up, but he didn't think about his rent. He didn't think about gas money. He didn't think about food. didn't think about his cell phone bill. He didn't think about his future. He was making preference-driven decisions because youthfulness kind of makes you stupid like that. 
And so this is a mirror for some of us, perhaps all of us, because in some ways we have done the same. Consumed with pride, impulsive and preference-driven, and we have made decisions, fatal decisions, life-altering decisions with enormous consequences that one conversation with God or a wise person would have, would have, would have set you straight. Some of you think, if I would have just processed this with one person, if I just talked to my mom about this, I wouldn't be consumed with this debt right now. If I would have just bought that joker to church and let just one person meet him, they might have, they might have saw through him in a way that I could not. And some of you, your issue is poor stewardship. You can relate to this guy and his, his, his money, living lavishly, spending lavishly, doing foolish, making foolish mistakes. And so you can relate to him because right now you're in a financial desti- financially destitute place. Others of you are super good with your money, but you might apply this story to some other area of your life, perhaps your relationships. Maybe you're single looking for somebody to settle down with, and you know everything. You can't be told anything, and so you're, you're, you're meeting bad person after bad person. You're starting over and making mistakes. Maybe you're married and you're flirting with disaster because you're consumed with your own pride. You're making quick and impulsive mistakes, and you're just about, you're just about one day away from visiting your kids on the weekends. I told you, this story is a mirror. Maybe you could apply this to your career and vocational life because you haven't learned the value of just staying put and being long-suffering and understanding that at the first sign of trouble, the first time your boss says something that you don't like, you're just going to blow the place up and leave. You've had eight jobs in the last two years. Maybe you've been to eight churches In the last eight weeks, maybe you're a young person here and you know more than your parents. You can't be told anything. If you look behind you in the recent past, you can see a life marked by pride, avoidable mistakes, and consequences that come to bear that are not just costly for you, but are costly for your parents as well. Where do you find yourself in this story? Maybe for some of you, the application of this story of epic failure is purely spiritual for you. Where your waywardness has to do with you running away from God. You know too much. You're too smart for the Bible. You're too smart for religion. And you've tried to run away from the Lord only to find mistake after mistake. Nothing satisfies. And here you are in the proverbial pig pen longing and lusting after just something the pigs would eat off of. How does this story speak to you? What ditches or pig pens of life are you in this morning? This was the lost son. His money ran out, and he's destitute. How do you turn this thing around? How do you turn it around? 
I told you I wanted to highlight three things that led to his failure, but I wanted to conclude with two things that bring him back to center. The first thing that sort of starts this whole turning point is he remembers his daddy. He remembers his daddy. And he eventually makes his way home, but that's not the first thing. The turning point is he's in this mess, and he remembers his daddy. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He's rehearsing this speech that he's going to say to his father, but a whole lot is wrapped up in the remembering. We talked a few months ago about the importance, the necessity of remembering God. Nothing happens. Nothing happens until you remember God. A whole lot's wrapped up in the remembering of God. This is the turning point. Why is this a turning point? Because the easiest thing to do in life, especially if you're full of pride, if you're wrapped up in yourself, if nobody can tell you anything, the easiest thing to do to lose yourself is to forget God. Because everything else is so tangible. Everything is right there for you to touch and right there for you to feel. And the invisible God is the easiest thing to forget if you allow yourself to. He remembered his father. He remembered that in this moment, he said, man, this is, I'm living beneath the type of daddy I got. My daddy has a staff. He has an estate. He had enough bread to just write me a check. It probably didn't even feel it. And here I am. So some of you have come to that conclusion recently. You've looked around the room of your life or the pen that you're in and said, this is well beneath who I am. Looked around the room of your relationships and said, these people don't deserve me. I'm a son of the king. But he couldn't remember home. He couldn't remember his father without first acknowledging the mess he was in and acknowledging also that this is a mess that he had made. Literally, he's sitting in a mess. And he was able to see what mess he had made, the fool that he'd been, the fool that he'd become, no doubt the folks that he'd hurt. And he'd probably start doing the math because you, you, you do really good math when you lost everything. You might not be that good at math, and when, when you've blown some money, right, you'll get real good at counting, real good at adding up the things that you lost, the things that you squandered, when you're having fun with your good time buddies, anything, oh, that bottle's $100, I'll get it. Oh, you won't want to get it, right? Nothing has a price tag when you got it, right? But when you don't, you say, man, I spent $100 on that. And that, I spent 1500 that's, that's my mortgage. You start counting up the cost of things when you're looking at it in the rearview mirror, and this is what happened. He's got time to sit with himself along with his thoughts. And this is why we make the case, by the way, that you bring those kids to church. They live in your house, you bring them to church. 
I said, where's so-and-so? A nine-year-old kid, where is he? Oh, he didn't want to come today. Did, did you feed him this week? <laughs> Me, he didn't want to come. I was in church three, four times a week. I figured it out. I could go to sleep. I would go to, I'd go to sleep and figure when I wake up, then it'll be all over. And I would wake up and the preacher would just be getting up and I had to sit through. And if I fell asleep in service, like my dad would make me and my cousin stand up. Not like go to the back, but like if I was sitting right there and I fell asleep, I had to stand up the whole service so I wouldn't go to sleep. Now my cousin figured out how to sleep standing up. I didn't have such, you know. <laughs> There's not a week that goes by that I don't quote my father. I said through all of his sermons, I've heard so much scripture and so much Bible, and at the time it meant very little to me, but where I stand right now, particularly in those seasons where I came to myself, where I made a mess of my life, where all that stuff came rushing back. And so we make the case not about just you being here and your family being here and your kids being here. It may not take you at the time, but you can't unhear it. You can't unknow truth. And sometimes you just have to get past yourself, find yourself in a pigsty somewhere along with your own thoughts. You don't have enough money to go and turn up. None of your friends want to come and hang out with you alone with your thoughts, you and the Holy Ghost. And what comes rushing back? The truth. Memories of home. Saw what a mess he made. He remember his dad. Remember all the time his dad said, boy, I love you. Listen to me. Look in my face. I love you. You're acting a fool, but remember, there's nothing you can do to make me stop loving you. There's no place you can go that's too far where you cannot come home. Look at me, son. Now, you're going to get in trouble for this, but understand something. You're my boy. You're going to always be my boy. You can always come home. I imagine something like that came rushing over him as he sat alone with his thoughts. He remembered his father. And he knew that his present circumstance was far beneath who he was. He remembered his father's assets. He said, my father, got, he got a staff. Maybe my father's too angry with me to just reinstate me and to give me all, my own room back. Maybe, maybe he'll give me a job. Anything would be better than this. I just got to, my father is a man of means. And some of you might take some time to consider your father as you said as the consequences of your own decisions have come to bear, as you count up the cost of what you've squandered and what you've lost, as you've made avoidable mistakes, would you consider in this moment, you've done what you've done. That's, that, you can't do anything about that. What would you consider in this moment your father? But he sent his son to die for you. He's a, he, he's a man of means. And you don't have to live the way you're living. You don't have to be isolated and alone. You don't have to be defined by your worst moment. But your father has told you over and over through messages and sermons and podcasts and all sorts of things that there's nothing you can do that can make him stop loving you. There's no distance that you can walk that what you, you, you can't come back. What you consider your father 
in this very moment. Yeah, you. Because when he did that, he made perhaps the most important step in this whole journey, despite his failures and mistakes, when he remembered his father, he went home. He went home. And, you know, and some of us, we, we, we go through this whole progression, but we never, like, we never go home. And some of you haven't gone home because of the voices that we heard at the beginning of this chapter, the Pharisees, who just like, like, you know, this isn't a hospital for the sick. This is like a holy hangout for the already together. And maybe you walked into somebody's church and they looked at you like what you've been through. And maybe they put their purse on the seat so you wouldn't sit next to them, or they start to murmur about you or make you feel unwelcome in God's house. And if that's happened to you, I'm sorry, but that's not a representation of who God is. That's not who we are. And would any of us have the gall, the audacity, to turn away somebody who comes on a gurney into the hospital? Like we know some of your story. You are put together right now. But we remember when somebody wheeled you in here. Well, you sat across from one of us and told us about what you were into. And you were ready to be shown the door. Or at least the back row. And somebody said, no, no, no. Hey, fine. We all got something. He came home. He came home. Now, here's the thing you got to understand about coming home. The same distance that you walked away is usually the same distance that you have to walk back. And so sometimes coming home is humiliating. Sometimes it's a long and arduous road. Some of us, we spent a decade going away from God, but we want to get in like the Wayback Machine in, you know, three, three minutes and be back. The same distance that you walked away is the same distance that you have to return. And this young man was willing to make that journey because he came to himself. And as my time winds down, I read his father's response. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. He ran to him. Now, you see fathers running all the time. First century Jewish men, they didn't run. Particularly if you were a man of means, you didn't run. And so to see this, you know, older, wealthy Jewish man gird up his, the loins of his gown and run to his son is remarkable. But what's more remarkable to me was that he saw the boy coming, which suggests that he was out there looking for him. Now, unless the Holy Spirit told him on this particular day that your son would be coming, go out there and wait, I don't think that's how it went down. I think that every day he went out there. The neighbors across the street say, Jane is out at the, at the mailbox again. What is he doing? He waiting for a package? Did he order some Amazon Prime? What is he waiting for? This boy was out there. He was expecting somebody. And on this particular day, he saw a shadow in the distance, and he recognized the shape of that apple head of his son's. 
he recognized that old gate that he walked. As he got closer, he saw, he saw, that's my boy. Boy, he's dirty. He looks a mess. He's aged about 10 years, but that's my boy. And he ran to him. And let me just tell you, it doesn't matter how epic your failure has been, you have a father that is waiting for you. You have a, and somebody need, I don't know who needs to hear this today. You have a father who is waiting for you. And if it bears repeating a third time so it can sink in, you have a father who is waiting for you and who isn't too dignified to come running toward you because he knows the shame you have. He knows you got a speech in your pocket that you want to read, and if you notice, the boy didn't even get halfway through his speech. He said, no, 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 no. Go get yourself cleaned up. Kill that animal. We're going to throw a party. Like when the sheep, came, sheep was found, he threw a party. When the coin was found, he threw a party. When the son, a human being, another social security number was found, we throw a party. Father welcomes you home. And if this could be the physical edifice that represents your Christian home for those who are wayward, for those of you who are homeless, for those of you who have been rejected elsewhere, let me just say as the chief steward, the chief servant, you are welcome in this house of faith, in this community of faith. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. If you hear nothing that I say today, worship team, you can come up. Your father wants you at home. He wants you at home. Now, your natural parents might not want you at their house (laughs) for, for good reason. But your heavenly father, he, he wants you home. You say, preacher, I've been so foolish. I've made such a mess. Just get to know us. You'll find you're in good company. You say, you know how much relationship and how much money and resource I've squandered. I, I've got a, you know, a, a, a rap sheet a mile long. I'm thrice divorced. You don't have time to get into all of it. Okay, man. Your father wants you at home, bro. Who's heading toward epic failure? Who, who's right there right now? Who needs to hear that no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you screwed up, that you can come home? That's you today. Your father welcomes you home. And my prayer for you is that you would receive that, that you would lean in, that you would engage the long walk home, and that you would receive the Father's love even though you've made a mess. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your love and kindness, Lord, that is better than life itself. For those of us who have made mistakes and for those of us who have made a mess of our lives, for those of us who our life mirrors the story that we read today, Lord, we, we, we return to you. We remember you. We come home today. Father, would you help us to lay down our pride? Would you help us to lay down our arrogance? Would we 
cause us to slow down and to seek your wisdom and the wisdom of those around us, would you, would you free us from the avoidable mistakes that are plaguing our life? Would you cause us, even as we worship you today, to remember you and to make that journey home, no matter what that looks like, no matter how long it takes, Father, will you? Come, Holy Spirit. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.